All right. Good morning. How is everybody? All right. Welcome to our Social Enterprise Summit this year presented by Coalfield Development. I appreciate everybody for filling up the room. I think we have a great group of people in the room today and we're going to we're going to learn a lot and we're going to network, brainstorm and learn about social enterprise in Appalachia. Welcome to Appalachian Startup, stories of new ideas that eventually became thriving businesses in areas that most would consider a bad investment. I'm J.D. Belcher, and I started this podcast because I took the same path as a lot of these folks. I'm a former coal miner, and now I make films through my own production company called JJN Multimedia. I wanted to hear others speak of their journey to not only give new beginners hope, but to help me grow as a fellow entrepreneur. Now, today we have a special episode. We have several short segments coming at you from our on-location visit to the Social Enterprise Summit, brought to you by Strong Mountain Communities and Coalfield Development Corporation. It is a yearly event held in Beckley, West Virginia, that showcases West Virginia entrepreneurship and has a full day of workshops for the community to join in and learn from local experts. These five individuals were voted Social Entrepreneurs of the Year and are from several facets of the economy, including nonprofits, farmer co-ops, and for-profit businesses. First, we have Chuck Tusing from Richwood Scientific in Richwood, West Virginia. They are teaching people in Appalachia the ways of technology, including coding and biology. I thought having a a makerspace or... uh a place like a co-working space where tech, people who work in tech could, you know, come together, build a little community, share information, share ideas. Um, you know, it takes a building to do that. And to, to buy a building in Los Angeles, where I'm from, is a completely different proposition than it is in Richwood. We, we got a building in Richwood for less than $10,000 that was ready to move in. You know, we're able to try a whole bunch of experiments in there. So I, I work during the day writing software, and then at night we're teaching classes and um, trying to teach other people how to work as independent consultants in, in technology. And um, if you don't have to go to work, Richwood's an awesome place to live. Right. So how big is your space? So the space that we have right now is about 2,000 square feet, but we just bought another building down the street that's... 27,000 square feet, it's four stories. I mean, we're not going to fill the whole thing, but we're going to put some technology in there. Um, we're starting a community-owned internet service provider in Richwood, so that's going to be in there. Um, a fiber installation company we're going to put in there, and then hopefully some cool apartments. $10,000. How much would that space cost in L.A., you think? Well, it's, L.A.'s got a lot of different neighborhoods, but... I kind of equate it. So you, you can almost buy a building in Richwood for a dollar a square foot to buy it. Um, in San Francisco, uh, to rent a building in a okay neighborhood is 20 to $25 a square foot a month to rent. So, you know, it's, so there you go. you're talking multiple million dollar building versus, you know, five, 10 grand. Right. So tell me about the boot camp. So our boot camp is we do a 12-week boot camp. We offer it for no charge. And uh, we probably get about 60 people to that start. And then 
mm, probably 20-ish people come through the middle and about 12 will graduate. That seems to be the trend. So really what we're doing is we're trying to discover people who are interested in it, um, who we can, you know, uncover that diamond in the rough, say, and then put them into um, an internship position or hopefully maybe get them making more money in their existing job. We've had a lot of people who come and they just want to learn a little bit more about computers or tech or how to write code. Um, so we expose them to a lot of different things in software. Right. So what kind of success stories have you had? For, is there anyone that you've noticed a huge improvement with over those 12 weeks? Or you know, talk about their entry level. Where are they at compared to where they leave? Well, so pretty much everyone who's come to it. We haven't had anybody who, who's come in as a programmer. Um, we've had guys, of course, you know, who are coal miners. We've had guys who've worked in utility companies. We've had people who have been teachers and we've probably had 10, 15 people who come out at the end of the 12 weeks who are actually effective as entry level programmers and have all started you know, jobs either with us or in different companies. One of the guys who works with us went to another conference in West Virginia yesterday um, and represented Richwood Scientific as uh, one of our programmers. Have they all found jobs in West Virginia doing this or have some of them had to leave or how does that work? Anybody who's anybody who I know of that has continued on in a job using programming that they got from us is, have all stayed in West Virginia. And, and for those who don't know, go ahead and talk about what programming is and what coding is. W what is it exactly to someone who's completely green on the subject? For example, let's just take web design. Uh, that's a big thing. Everybody uses the internet. So when you go to a web page and all those pictures and words come up, um, someone's built that website. Um, they've used some coding to make the words and pictures land in certain spots. Uh, there's a server on the back end out there in the cloud on the internet somewhere that has some programming done on there that facilitates sending the the web pages back and forth, gathering information. Um, all of the apps that you use on your iPhone or your Android, that's all takes someone programming it to to make some end product. Programming is really just teaching the computer to do something. Um, whether it's a game or deliver a website or record audio. Right. So what's the market potential uh, with programming in Appalachia that a lot of people may not know about? Well, to say in Appalachia is something that I think that we should probably try and stay away from as a programming is a talent and you can work remotely as a programmer. So being a programmer in Appalachia to me shouldn't indicate a financial power uh, more or less than, say, a programmer who lives in San Francisco. Um, programming is something that's very easily done remotely that you don't have to go into an office. You just need an internet connection. We certainly have internet in Appalachia. Um, I do know that there are some companies who have looked at Appalachia and coming here and saying, well, you know, you live in West Virginia, so even though you're giving us the same skill, uh, we should pay you less. And I, I disagree with that. I, I think um, 
you know, my earning potential as a programmer because I deliver the same skill if I'm sitting in a chair in Richwood, West Virginia, or if I'm sitting in a chair in San Francisco, California. Um, uh, so that's that's the Appalachian thing. Um, programming is, you can start, I mean, an internship job in programming's a 15 to $20 an hour entry level thing. After a couple of years, it's not uncommon as an independent consultant to make $35, $40 an hour. And, you know, it goes up from there. Right. So how does someone get started? You know, um, uh, how, how can they enroll in with Richwood Scientific in, in the boot camp? How does that work? So we have, um, you know, we have a website, we have Facebook. Um, what I would suggest for people to do is go to meetup.com and search for Richwood Scientific and then sign up there because we use meetup to announce all of the classes that we're doing. We do other classes too, besides um, programming. We've done photography, we've done DNA sequencing, we've done uh, a lot of different technology kind of things. Um, so all of the classes get announced mostly through Meetup. DNA sequencing. What is this? There's a lot of new biotechnology that's coming out. Uh, CRISPR is a really interesting technology where you can take DNA and take broken pieces literally out of a DNA sequence and replace it with a new, you know, a fixed um, sequence of, of DNA. And um, so there's just different tools that, that you use um, to perform those functions. And we've set up a little lab at Richwood Scientific where we play around with doing um, DNA replication and then we can send it out to a lab to get sequenced. Um, that's a whole other... Is this 23andMe type stuff or what are we talking? So yeah, I mean, you could we, do 23 murders. Me. No, or, I mean, we could. Okay. Um, <laughs> we're not really solving murders, but one of the things that we did was um, we took mitochondrial DNA from a cheek swab and um, we put that into a machine that's called a, a PCR machine that replicates the DNA. We isolate the mitochondrial DNA and then we replicate that, put it in a test tube and send it off to a sequencing lab that will tell you, you know, if you have this sequence, then your ancestors are maybe from this area of the world. Right. That's one thing that you can do. So I'm out, you know, I'm a high school graduate. I have no plans on what I want to do with my life. Do I have to have any qualifications at all to enroll or can I just come in, you know? No, you don't. So we don't require any qualifications um, pre-class. We do give people some homework beforehand to try and, you know, get them up to speed because most people have no experience with, with computing. I guess to answer your question, what do you need first? You really just need the interest and drive to carry on. Um, 12 weeks sounds like a short amount of time, but we do two days a week, um, six to eight. And, you know, you have to get yourself to Richwood. We don't do it online. I think it's important that everybody's, you know, in a classroom together when they're just starting. Right. Awesome. So what would you say is some of the qualities you need to be a successful entrepreneur in Appalachia, in a rural community anywhere? What, what would be those qualities you would need? Well, the typical entrepreneurial qualities like being a risk taker, um, bootstrapping, uh, you know, knowing how to build things with a little bit of resources, not having, you know, a ton of capital. I think it 
that's what it takes to be an entrepreneur anywhere. Um, so I think if you have the entrepreneurial spirit in Los Angeles, you can certainly have entrepreneurial spirit in Appalachia. I mean, there are some challenges here. Like there's not a big access to venture capital outside of say New York and California. The other side of that is maybe you don't need a ton of capital because you are in Appalachia. So it's less expensive to live here. It's less expensive to buy a building if you want to start a business like that. Um, workforce can be less expensive, obviously. So if you have the entrepreneurial spirit, I think Appalachia is just filled with opportunity. Jay Morgan Leach is the CEO of the West Virginia Farmers Cooperative and is advocating for industrial hemp in West Virginia. A farmers co-op is basically a group of farmers who work together to sell their products and share profits for an overall higher yield. We started in 2015 when I was in law school, uh, WVU College of Law. I uh, was in their Center for Energy and Sustainable Development. And basically what we were working on that time, economic diversification strategies for the state of West Virginia. Uh, you know, that year's you know, big decline in the coal economy, states struggling to balance the budget, a lot of problems going on, you know, can't pay our teachers, can't pay people. I mean, you know, just not, not a good spot to be in. So, um, you know, we really thought that, uh, you know, looking towards our strengths and our assets, you know, we're obviously a natural resource state, uh, very heavily focused in the energy economy. And I think that that was kind of the problem is, you know, we were so focused there and not in other areas. Uh, so we started to focus on agriculture. And uh, just so happened to be at the same time that industrial hemp becomes a, a crop that's legal for uh, R&D uh, and pilot program that the state of West Virginia, we already had um, legislation on the book. So we were able basically to just get started on, on you know, trying to grab a cash crop that worked for farmers uh, and that would generate some real revenue and, and create some opportunities for diversification. So that's kind of, that's where we started. Right. So day one. <laughs> what was the first discussion about this? Did you did you partner up with somebody or, or what did you do? Yeah, um, I worked with uh, two guys in the state uh, who were co-founders of our farming cooperative. Uh, one is Don Smith. Uh, the other is Mike Manypenny, a uh, former delegate here in West Virginia. Um, he's actually the one who helped, um, you know, co-sponsored and helped pass the Industrial Hemp Farming Act in 2002 that we were able to operate on. Um, but, you know, with the help of, of, of those two guys uh, who are, you know, entrenched in the farming industry, you know, in agriculture here in West Virginia, um, you know, and I was kind of new to agriculture. I mean, you know, I grew up on family farm. You know, my grandma was a sheep farmer uh, in West Virginia and North Carolina. Uh, but, you know, I wasn't really in any, any, you know, meaningful agricultural businesses before I went to law school. Um, so, you know, with the help of those guys and, and then also with WVU uh, Entrepreneurship and Innovation Clinic, we started kind of pulling all this stuff together and saying, you know, how can, can we create a, uh, a viable business model for this, knowing that, you know, there are a lot of, of legal and regulatory challenges. There's huge knowledge gaps in how uh, we farm industrial hemp and what we use it for. Uh, you know, th these emerging markets for these different products, you know, where can we focus? How can we grow to, to those markets? Because it is a niche market. I mean, you know, we're not talking about reinventing how to grow corn. I mean, as, as a commodity crop, we're looking at how to grow hemp 
to suit the needs of, of West Virginia farmers. Right. So how many farmers are in your cooperative? Uh, right now we are in open enrollment and membership, but uh, I believe we are upwards of 40 members at this point, of which I believe we have 34 that currently hold license to grow hemp. Um, and I think we span probably 15 plus counties in West Virginia where we're doing small scale pilot production um, up to some large scale production. So those all 40 are in West Virginia? Yeah, we only work in West Virginia. Um, you know, the way the pilot programs are set up, um, you know, we only work with license holders in the state of West Virginia. So uh, I do have colleagues in, in many other states. Um, uh, I run the state's uh, Hemp Industries Association. So, you know, that spans the whole country, a national organization. And so, you know, we do have a lot of counterparts in, you know, PA, Virginia, Kentucky, North Carolina, Tennessee, Colorado, uh, Vermont. So we work with a lot of different people, uh, but mainly focus on, on farming in West Virginia. Right. What year did you start, you say? Uh, 2015 is when we founded the Farming Cooperative, uh, West Virginia Farmers Cooperative. And so that's been kind of an evolving process since then. So what's the goal now? Like, what is this upcoming year? What does it look like for you? It's all infrastructure. I mean, we have, you know, come out of 80 years of prohibition where, you know, the the methods that were used to grow it at that time, you know, obviously technology has changed substantially. So uh, we're taking an old age crop and applying new age technology. And so that's really an exciting thing to be able to do because, you know, again, it's, you know, we're not really farm, you know, following all these traditional farming practices. We're doing new and innovative things. And so it's, it's kind of trying to pull all those pieces together, build the right infrastructure to make sure that your farmers can produce a viable crop and then you can get that crop to market. Do you, have you developed a sustainable revenue stream yet or, or what's, what's that look like right now? So the past two years, this is our third year of cultivation. So the first two years was very small scale pilot production. You know, some of the harvest went into, um, you know, again, exploring, you know, different technologies for processing and, and different product lines that those are suited for. Um, but this year was, was really a good year for us. We were able to pull in about uh, I'd say 30 to 40 acres uh, of hemp this year. We ended up uh, drying down about 6,000 pounds of hemp, um, which is, you know, some biomass and then also some grain production. Uh, so this year, you know, is our first real revenue producing year. And so not only have we been, you know, getting the farming side right, but, you know, also some of uh, actually our farming members are have been investing in processing. So it's kind of nice to have that network. Uh, of farmers and buyers for the product. So using the farm co-op as a hub to kind of bring all of those players together um, has really worked well. And and now, you know, this year, you know, we hope uh, to probably see revenues in excess of, you know, $150,000 of, of the crops that we did this year. So so this year is a really big year for us on, on validating our all of our projections, our financials, you know, everything, our yields, you know, all of that information, all that data is starting to reveal itself and, and show us, you know, how to proceed. What kind of products are made from hemp? Uh, you know, hemp is notorious for being very versatile. Uh, you know, they say you can make 25,000 different products out of hemp. That's probably true, um, you know, but we start with the base raw materials. So, uh, you know, the grain for food products, uh, you know, hemp seed oil is used not only in food, but also body care, cosmetic, et cetera. Um, same with the extracts, cannabidiol is a, a really uh, kind of 
up and coming um, supplement product. CBD oil? CBD, right. So, you know, it's kind of most, most of its notoriety comes from its use uh, from treating child epilepsies, really helps with seizures, you know, really does a lot of different things for the body. Um, it's becoming more explored by the medical community now that, um, you know, hemp is legal to, to grow and to produce in the United States. Uh, so we focus on producing biomass for processors uh, who do CBD production. Um, and then the fiber is, is really, um, you know, the really versatile piece of this. I mean, you can make so many different things out of this fiber. Historically, it was used for textile and rope and sail and shipbuilding and things like that. And, and now, you know, again, applying new age technology to this old age crop, we can do so much more with the fiber now than was ever done with it before. So there's thousands of opportunities um, and, and for the fiber production. So uh, what does the hemp market look like? What, what's the potential in West Virginia right now? Well, um, you know, you had uh, about 1,100 acres uh, registered with the State Department of Agriculture, and who knows how much of that was grown. Um, you know, our co-op represented probably about two to 300 acres of that, um, you know, which is not all successful. I mean, uh, you know, some, some had good crops, some had crop failure. I mean, that's the farming business. And, and this was a tough year for farmers. But, um, you know, there is real potential. I mean, even just within, you know, the 30, 40 acres we produced, I mean, you know, putting up revenues, you know, up over $100,000, up over six figures. I mean, you know, that's starting to dial in the process. That's starting to show people that, that the money's there, that, that the risk is worth it, that, that the reward is there. So um, I think there's big potential, really. I mean, this marketplace is new, it's emerging, it's not saturated. This is a time where West Virginia needs to really be a leader. And, uh, and actually, we've got a great foundation to do that. Um, I think that uh, our, our rules and regulations in the state are, are better than most across the country. Uh, and so now it's time for us to start to, to take advantage of that and try to get a leg up and, and get ahead and get established. Reverend Matthew J. Watts is the president and CEO of Hope Community Development Corporation. He is also a member of the Tuesday Morning Group in Charleston, West Virginia. The Tuesday Morning Group's mission is to create an environment in which the problems facing the African-American community can be clearly voiced and effectively addressed. The Tuesday Morning Group sort of emerged out of the crises facing the west side of Charleston, West Virginia, arguably one of the most challenged neighborhoods uh, in West Virginia to live. If we were a separate municipality, we would be the ninth largest city in Charleston. I mean, West Virginia with about 18,000 people. And so all of the pathologies of an urban community converges on the west side of Charleston. Uh, concentrated poverty, uh, high rates of uh, public subsidized housing, uh, crime, violence, drug trafficking, poor performance schools, etc. that sort of retrade itself over time and a high out-migration of, of the middle class. So look at the west side of Charleston, which is a highly populated African-American community. Uh, we begin to realize that if we could create a model there, maybe we could create a model that could serve as a template for other places. So a few of us came together, and we just started meeting. And we said, if we're serious enough about this, we'll meet every week. We started meeting every Tuesday morning. And uh, unable to agree upon a name, we just became the Tuesday morning group. <laughs> And therefore, we'll never be to change the day that we meet. And uh, this will be the 11th year that we've met every week of 11 years. And we start to collect data, uh, which uh, my organization takes the lead role on that, on data analysis and data collection. And we begin to realize there's some real serious problems facing 
the African-American community across the state, some real uh, serious um, disparities in terms of uh, high rates of poverty, um, high rates of, um, of uh, poor education, uh, poor educational outcomes, some serious health disparities. Uh, we were just... Uh, received some data from the Center for Disease Control, a very uh, a fact that's not very well known is that African-Americans are dying from opioid overdose addiction at a much higher rate than Caucasian in West Virginia. And that's not known. And there's going to be an article that's going to be coming out, I think, fairly shortly from the Associated Press. And so it sort of creates a perfect storm, really, for the continued downward spiral of the neighborhood. So we started looking at what could we do in terms of shaping public policy. And uh, that's an area where I have a lot of interest in my organization, Hope CDC. So we started to look at trying to take a lead role, working with legislators. Can we draft public policies that could uh, possibly create pilot projects for the west side of Charleston and that could be replicated in other communities? And so that's what we've been doing for the last several years. We've been able to get legislation uh, passed that would create a pilot project around education, a community development school pilot program. We got this legislation passed to use housing as a low, in low-income communities as a job training, employment, and economic development driver. But we created a template of how to coordinate all the various social services uh, that are funded in the state. So we're working very diligently now to try to coalesce with other groups around the state uh, to encourage the legislature and the governor's office to actually move forward with the, the governor's bill, which passed in 2017, uh, calling for the creation of a pilot project uh, to create a model and a template to be used across the state of West Virginia in rural, suburban, and urban communities uh, to address poverty and substance abuse and these other social determinants of health, like the things that you guys are doing around economic development, workforce development, job training, et cetera. So uh, we're hopeful that maybe in this coming year, that the governor's uh, pilot program will be introduced that could maybe help communities, particularly throughout southern West Virginia and other parts of West Virginia as well. Mm-hmm. So it was for, uh, the Tuesday morning group was formed 11 years ago? 11 years ago. Awesome. So what have you what have, have you seen as far as progress since, you know, in those 11 years? What have you personally noticed uh, with individuals that you've helped with these pilot programs? I think one of the main, uh, one of our big success stories uh, was a project that the Tuesday Morning Group has helped uh, Hope Community Development Corporation develop, and that's called the Neighborhood Housing and Economic Stabilization uh, Program. The goal to use housing uh, reconstruction, maintenance, weatherization, and upgrades as a job training, employment, economic development driver. So over the last um, uh, nine or 10 years, uh, we've had over 60 individuals that have received job training, uh, on the job training where they were paid. Uh, Some of them have gotten into uh, some of the construction trades. Some of them realized that this isn't for me, but we're able to get them into other job training or employment. Uh, We provided housing uh, for over 70 families uh, during that period of time. And uh, now we are uh, on the brink of turning some of our current renters into homeowners, which is our ultimate uh, goal. Uh, We've had about seven or eight people to become homeowners, and we're hoping over the next year maybe to have 10 more people to become actual homeowners. And so uh, the Neighborhood Housing Organization Project, supported by the Tuesday Morning Group, has actually garnered some national attention uh, from the Christian Community Development Association out of Chicago. They came and actually did a, a video about us, include us in their empowerment video uh, for national curriculum. And uh, this past year, we were awarded uh, 
the uh, residential housing project of the year uh, from uh, the uh, uh, communities, Western Community Works. So that's been one of our biggest accomplishments we think around housing. And now uh, the Tuesday morning group is actually shaping uh, the amendment to the city of Charleston, the Charleston Urban Renewal Authority's uh, Westside Community Renewal Plan, which is a plan that's supposed to address the slum and blighted conditions there. Fantastic. So what's it like personally for you to witness, uh, you know, some of these individuals that go through the programs? It's been tremendously uh, rewarding because, as you know, this is just hard work. And some of these communities where there are not a lot of resources, people's spirits have been broken. Uh, they've been uh, disappointed so often and so frequently by those that they elect to uh, political office who haven't delivered. Uh, many feel like they've been economically exploited because there's uh, no real commitment to economic reciprocity. These poor communities become what I call economic transfer centers, right? And money just transfer that through them uh, back into the economy and back into the hands of uh, the larger businesses. So for me personally, I, I've been at this uh, for 25 years, and uh, those early years were very dry in terms of not really seeing much progress of movement made. But over these last uh, 10, 11 years with Tuesday Morning Group, we've made progress, and we actually can see, right, this vision that we had that we would be able to uh, mobilize community residents to engage with us, that we'd be able to influence public policy uh, at the local, county, and at the state level, and to see families have better housing options, um, to be able to have a home, as one uh, mother with her children said to me, she lived in public housing her entire life. And she said, for once, I would like to live in a house that I can walk around. <laughs> I'd like to live in a house where I have my own front of my own backyard, right? So uh, that's been kind of exciting. And, um, and to see some of the senior citizens that had remained there, you know, and saw their property values plummet, uh, to see the slum and blighted housing emerge in a neighborhood that was once a wonderful working class community, to see them get excited again about seeing the change uh, in a positive direction has been tremendously rewarding and encouraging. Rural entrepreneurs out there, what are some of the qualities you have seen in the success stories that helped them to get to where they are now and to push through that wall? I just think uh, um, a clear vision of wanting to see something better and wanting to be a part of something and a vision of what they wanted to accomplish uh, themselves. Uh, and secondly, just a, a bulldog uh, tenacity, a resiliency uh, to recognize that there are going to be setbacks, but not let them discourage or break the spirit and continue uh, to move forward. Thirdly, you know, um, the, the ability to recognize the need that uh, – we can't go at it solo. Even as an entrepreneur, we need partners uh, where there is real uh, reciprocity, you know, and where we're sharing and we're helping each other uh, uh, to move along. And uh, and then recognizing that if you're producing a good or a service, right, you're producing it for someone. And so the, the, the customers, the end users, the clients, uh, they're important and you got to listen to them and make, make sure that uh, part of your motivation is to do something that's going to make uh, the quality of life for others better and not just for yourself. Tammy Jordan is the president of Fruits and Labor. Their mission is to work to improve lives of at-risk youth and adults as an addiction prevention program. Also, adults in recovery from addiction through training, opportunities, mentoring, life skills, and encouragement. This is carried out daily through their training cafe and bakery located in Raynell, West Virginia. 
and we are a 17-year-old company that's based out of Greenboro County. We um, teach those that are in recovery, culinary and agricultural. We're nationally certified through the American Culinary Federation. And um, so they go through the program free of charge. What, what certification do they receive? So they will have um, like serve safe food handlers or uh, the county food handlers permits. Um, we will give them continuing education hours through the ACF as a quality program. If they would want to stay with us up to two years, then they can certify as a certified pastry culinarian or certified culinarian. And so then we'll work with Workforce, which um, brings in a training program for Bring Your A Game, which is through job retention. Um, and then they'll do resume building. We have visibility, which is vision, purpose, and entrepreneurial sets. Um, so it's looking at a mindset of uh, developing different thought patterns and how to apply that for your life mission. Um, and we work with WVU Extension for a nutrition program. Great. Uh, now, t tell me about the, how you came up with the name exactly. Oh, Fruits of Labor. Um, so I, I really wanted a name that would, we, we are a faith-based company, and so I wanted a name that would um, have that wonderful connection. But, um, you know, coming up with your corporate name, I also wanted a name that would encompass anything that we could think about doing in my lifetime. And that's kind of hard. We're 17 years old this year, so it's hard to think about what could happen in the next 20 years or 40 years. And uh, But one night I dreamed uh, the name of Fruits of Labor, so that came out of a dream. Awesome. And your love for cooking was established when? Oh my goodness! Yes. Um, so my that we just have a long family lineage. So I would grew up um, cooking with my great grandmother, grandmother, and mother all in the same kitchen at the same time. And so um, just coming together from that place of family, and uh, it was the meeting place. Uh, we would all socialize there, and I was never too young to be in the kitchen. So they always had me there with them. Even if I had to, my mom has a picture of me when I was less than one years old, uh, standing up on a chair, helping move the silverware from the sudsy side to the to the water side. Oh, awesome. What did you used to cook when you were little? Well, the first thing that I ever tried to be prepare um, was a cherry pie to surprise my mom. And um, I had, oh, I think I was about seven years old and I had, she had left for, shopping or something. And I told my dad, I'm, I'm going to cook a pie. And um, he was like, okay. And I had started with the pastry crust and I had to call my grandmother and say, what does it mean when you cut the butter in to size a piece? So she got on the phone and she was like, okay, now you've got to get your two little knives out. <laughs> so, you know, it's just having those resources, having family and being able to connect in that way has been very powerful. Do you think you take anything from your childhood into seeing, you know, someone enter the program and their growth throughout that process? How rewarding is that to you? Oh, goodness. Um, it is so transformative. I think that um, we tell our students that they change us more than we ever hope to change them. Um, their their investment in our life is such a blessing and then we get to share what we hope they will take on into their lives. Um, we are a family, so my parents will come in and volunteer. My brother's involved. 
Um, so it, it's something that they see family interacting and then they'll call, they'll call my dad pops. And <laughs> so there's those relationships. Um, many of our students have not had family, good family relationships, uh, either by, um, choices that they have made or just even the family structure itself. And so being able to share my family with them has been very powerful. Beautiful. So what's the goal? Like, uh, when did you start exactly? What year? Uh, so Fruits of Labor was born in 2001. And then um, we converted into offering the training program in 2013 for the first time. And so uh, over that time, we just developed a great business structure, and then it was able to sustain adding that training portion. Do you have an end goal, or do you just want to keep going as long as you can, or how how does that look? Well, the end goal is I already have <laughs> I already have a twenty year old that I'm hoping will replace me as I age, um, and you never know what their goals will change over time. But my goal is to develop leaders uh, to continue the mission of Fruits of Labor long before long after I'm unable to. Um, so it's really it's really transforming. Um, individuals bringing out their own leadership capacity and seeing them placed in industry, uh, seeing babies born drug-free. Uh, we've had five babies to date that were born drug-free from women that are in our program, seeing mothers reunited with their children. That has happened multiple times. So it's being part of a greater life focus um, instead of just saying, we're all about you becoming the next pastry chef or the next chef. It's about, are you feeding your family well? Are you feeding yourself well? Um, do you understand the next goals that you have in your life? Even if they do not always overlap with culinary, we bring in resources or connections to networks to help them get to their next goal. What would you tell an entrepreneur in, App in Appalachia or any rural community? What qualities uh, that they would need to, you know, not only start their business, but to be successful? I definitely think drive, um, being willing to work for your dream, to work long hours. You're, you're not going to be able to hire everybody. Uh, you, you probably are not going to have all the resources you need day one to work with what you have, where you are. Um, to understand that dreams take time to develop and to not be afraid of that. Um, paper is free, pretty much. You can write it down, and it may come out five years from now to be patient in the development, but to always be pressing forward at the same time. And sometimes it's very hard because um, things that we had hoped would take place earlier has taken many years. And then there are other things that just popped open that were on our list for later development. So it's being flexible and being willing to take that next step. Mike Costello is a farmer, chef, and storyteller. Together with his partner, Amy Dawson, they hold several farm-to-table dinners every year in West Virginia with their company, Lost Creek Farm. Their goal is to open minds about Appalachian cuisine and to continue finding stories that will spark the imagination of those who come to their dinners. It's been unoccupied for a few decades, so we came back to the farm and for the last few years have been in the process of trying to renovate that farm and get it back to its status as a working farm. And uh, we're slowly making some progress, but there's a lot more to do. And um, although we're based at the farm, the farming is certainly a big part of our business. Our primary 
business activity is in the kitchen. We're more of a culinary business than we are a, a commercial farm. Mm -hmm. So when, when was the first year of operation? Well, as a culinary business, I mean, we've been doing this kind of stuff on the side for a long time. So probably like 2014 or 2015, we were just doing these kind of one-off pop-up dinner or guest chef things, um, you know, and, and we were getting the farm kind of fixed up. But it was, at the time, like we didn't even live at the farm for those first couple of years because it had been so uh, kind of dilapidated in a lot of ways because of the just the fact that it was abandoned. And uh, sort of in our off time, we kind of played around with, uh, um, you know, the pop-up dinner stuff because we knew that we wanted to ultimately come back and, and have a food business there at the farm. Uh -huh. And it was really funny because we sort of had this timeline in our minds and we're sort of like, you know, in a few years we'll be set up and we'll sort of meet this step and we'll meet this step. And then we had these friends that uh, had a venue where they were doing a lot of pop-up dinners and they said, you know, you, you have to come down and do a dinner at our place. And, you know, everything that we had been doing up, up until then was pretty local. And we said, oh, we're not quite ready to take the show on the road yet. You know, we're, we're like fixing up the farm and everything, but we'll be ready maybe like next year. And they were just like, no, you're ready right now. Like you, you just have to, there's never going to be a time in your mind when you're sort of like, oh yeah, everything is perfectly in place and we're ready to take the next step, you know? So right, that was pretty good because we just sort of said, okay, like we'll try this thing out and, um, you know, we'll try a couple, uh, things on the road and it was crazy. It was like immediately we just kind of had this following and it sort of took off from there. Right. Go ahead and tell me how you started implementing the story aspect. Like, was that right away when you, when you started hosting these dinners? Once we sort of really embraced that kind of place-based identity in our food, we really did that. I mean, because one of some of the like earliest events that we did were not necessarily so kind of West Virginia focused, um, like most of the the meals that we provide now are. But once we got into that, you know, we really honed in on that storytelling aspect of it because, uh, you know, when we think about what it is that makes us a uniquely situated business, you know, what, what makes us an Appalachian business or what makes us a West Virginia-based business, it's not the fact that we necessarily cook certain dishes or, you know, cook with certain ingredients. I mean, that's certainly part of it, but a lot of those dishes, a lot of those ingredients can be found in other places too. So for us, it was all about how do we tell a story about why that tomato matters here or why that bean matters or, um, you know, why that sort of process of sitting on your porch with your grandma when you were six and peeling, uh, or snapping and stringing pole beans, like why that matters and why that sort of builds up this kind of place-based identity for us, you know? And it was like, that was the thing that separate, separated and continues to separate <clears throat> us and, some of the other uh, sort of like-minded businesses from other places, you know, because there are a lot of other businesses that try to be an Appalachian kind of focused food business that are run by people that are not from here. And they're running those businesses in big cities like DC or New York city. And they're claiming that this is Appalachian food, right? But like, what is it? What does it really mean? And they're not able to articulate what that means the same way that, you know, we are having grown up here and having this like set of experiences that really builds that identity up. Right. And we can talk about that. Those other folks can't. So it was sort of like, well, 
okay, we're not going to deny them like the right to cook Appalachian food, but we're going to create something that they're never going to be able to tap into. And that's going to be what's going to make us more sort of marketable. And that's going to be what's going to um, like legitimize us as, you know, a business that focuses on regional cuisine. My, my favorite, well, it's hard. The dumplings and then you made a trout empanada yeah 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 that's that's probably my favorite although everything is just insanely good <laughs> but um do you have a favorite thing you like to make if you had to choose i don't know um i think i go through these waves you know like sometimes i'll get really hooked on sausage for a while like uh i'll get really hooked or really inspired by talking to a particular family about some of these traditions and like the empanada is a good example of that it, it's a recipe that comes from a Spanish family down the road from us. You know, Clarksburg is mostly known for its wave of Italian immigrants that kind of stuck around a lot longer. There are a lot more Italian restaurants, of course, a lot more uh, during election season, a lot more uh, Italian names on uh, campaign signs on every street corner than there are Spanish names. But uh, at one time, there was this huge Spanish population in and around Clarksburg, and some of those families have stuck around. And uh, very few of them, but some of them still carry on these traditions of uh, making sausages or pastries or, you know, some other kind of charcuterie. And uh, that empanada was, it was like this recipe that um, was passed on to us by some of our neighbors, you know, and uh, I originally met them because I was interested in the sausage and like I said, yeah, you're interested in the sausage, but you should really get to know this empanada <laughs> that my mom makes. And, and I love you know, like that story of the empanada, because that's a dish that we'll often put on the menu and people will challenge us about if it is or like, isn't. Well, hang on. Yeah. Empanadas. Yeah, yeah. Right. They're like, right. They're like, this isn't West Virginia food, but it's kind of, I love when that happens because it gives us a chance to use again, to use the storytelling part of it, to talk about the complexity and the diversity that exists in Appalachia that maybe is something folks have never thought about before, you know, when they talk about um, what their own perceptions are about Appalachia. And then we put Lebanese food on the menu that came from a cookbook from Charleston, West Virginia, right? It's like a Lebanese and Syrian cookbook. And it gives us a chance to talk about the fact that, you know, at one time there was this huge wave of Middle Eastern immigration, um, you know, and it was especially relevant you know, a couple of years ago, it was like uh, we put a lot of Lebanese and Syrian food on our menus because there was like this staunch, there were these pockets of staunch opposition to Syrian immigration to West Virginia and to Appalachia. And, uh, you know, we wanted to tell a story about a time when we were more open to immigrants from Syria and that, you know, they, they've sort of always been, uh, at least since a certain time in the 19, mid, mid to early 1920s or so, like, we unfortunately forget. History. Yeah. 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 Um, what qualities would you say a rural entrepreneur or an entrepreneur in Appalachia needs to not only, you know, get their business started, whatever it may be, but to be successful at it? Well, um, I think one of the, the qualities would be maybe to be a little bit flexible on what that definition of successful is. Uh, I actually like to use the term viability a lot because I think that it means very different things to very different people. I mean, there have been times when uh, with our business at Lost Creek Farm, if we you know put our numbers to 
a spreadsheet and gave them to a financial advisor, they would probably tell us to like close up shop and go home and do something else because on paper, um, especially in sort of our off season, you know, where we kind of taper off, um, we just like, we're not doing as much business. There's not as much growing. And if you're sort of a, a, a restaurant that really, uh, utilizes as much local product as possible, you just kind of have to shut down a little bit in the wintertime. And, um, I think that it's tricky because there are, you know, there are things that to us make that business viable, even though the definition of like successful wouldn't really match up with a lot of people who might be advising us. But like we have this incredible lifestyle kind of as, you know, homesteaders in that off season. And we have this incredible freedom and we sort of, I mean, we're, we're freaking busy as heck in a lot of other ways, you know, getting like our, our house situated or trying to, um, like cut firewood for the winter or, you know, prepping the garden for the upcoming spring or whatever it really is. Um, but it, man, it, every day it's like, even though there are a lot of days in the wintertime where there's not like a lot of money coming in, it, it still feels viable and successful in a lot of ways, just because it's sort of like we're, we're controlling our own destiny. You know, we're doing it on our terms and we're not like going in and working for somebody else. And, you know, we feel a lot of freedom and control in that way. Special thanks to Richwood Scientific, West Virginia Farmers Co-op, the Tuesday Morning Group, Fruits of Labor, and Lost Creek Farm for your continuing mission to improve life here in Appalachia. You can find out more about all of these organizations on Facebook. Appalachia Startup is a bi-weekly podcast, so be sure to check back for more stories of entrepreneurship, like us on Facebook and Instagram, and support the show by grabbing a sticker from our online store at AppalachianStartup.com. Don't forget to review our podcast on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. We are on Patreon, so you can support the show there, and that will allow us to continue to find more businesses in Appalachia to showcase. And stay tuned for more stories of underdogs on the rise.